Hi everyone. I am going to give you a lowdown of my own experience with the introduction to authentic relating in just a moment. But first I wanted to give you a sneak peek of the chapter that I'm going to begin today. It's chapter three, the five practices of authentic relating of conflict equals energy, the transformative practice of authentic relating. And I'm going to read part of this chapter because it's a longer one. Um, and I'm going to give you one of the passages real quick here that kind of moved me to here just to give you a taste of what this chapter is about. We have all kinds of past experiences stored in our brains and bodies at the subconscious level. Our subconscious mind is continuously and rapidly pattern matching what is happening in the present moment with what has happened in the past. It does its best to predict what might happen in our future, and it does this for our own good. After all, responding to danger is easier when one is prepared for it. And then a little bit later, when we assume we know what's about to happen based on our past traumas and experiences, we rob the present moment of its mystery and unique expression. Pretty juicy stuff. Okay, so before we hit the, the details of this chapter, I'm going to just share with you how I first got introduced to this work. So in this yoga training, we had um, a module that was focused on circling. And essentially, if you can imagine five people sitting in a circle, starting to get into a meditative state, eyes closed, direction of their attention is going inward. So as you would with a seated meditation, starting to bring your attention to your breathing, starting to bring attention to your inner world. And from that space, then you keep your attention inward and then open your eyes to a soft focus spot on the floor. So you're not looking at anyone yet. But the practice of trying to keep your attention inward and opening your eyes at the same time, just that is a challenge. So that's kind of step one. And then beyond that, the next step that we went through in this module, every time we practiced circling, we began this way. So the eyes closed, focused inner attention, and then you gently open your eyes. And then you open your eyes even more and make eye contact with someone in the circle. So making eye contact with someone <laughs> in a prolonged, intensive, focused way is so profoundly and deeply uncomfortable. I don't know if you've ever um, attempted this with someone who is that you're not intimately close with, but it can feel like standing naked in a room, essentially. So doing this for the first few times, you know, you have the impulse to laugh and you have the impulse to like hide under your chair and you, it's just, it's absurd how, um, the level of intimacy that you feel when you make eye contact with someone. So that practice, I highly recommend just for the sake of its, of its, uh, ability to make us uncomfortable because it does, um, reveal certain things to you 
about yourself that you might not have known otherwise. So I'll just leave it at that. But so that was the next part of our um, circling practice was make eye contact with someone. You hold the gaze for maybe 10, 20 seconds. And then the leader of our group would say, and now make eye contact with someone else. 10, 20 seconds. And now make eye contact with someone else. 10, 20 seconds. Uh, if it's an uneven number and there's no one for you to make eye contact, you just basically can look at the floor or the wall or whatever until the next round. And um, from that space, it uh, can really help do a few different things. Number one is it connects you to your inner experience first. So you know what you're bringing into the circle, which I've talked about before as being really important. And then the second thing that it does is it connects you to the people that you're seated with in a way that um, helps create a sacred space and helps create a zone of safety. In other words, um, no one's going to shoot a Nerf gun at you while you're um, in this meditative space. It basically opens up the the meditation beyond a personal experience into a group experience. And so... um, At that point, the kind of circling that we did was basically like a birthday circle where one person is given all attention for around an hour, roughly an hour is how we did it. And the job of the people in the circle is to um, remain focused on the birthday person and just observe them and then Uh, share their experience of that person with the intention of trying to get them, like trying to understand them, trying to see a fuller picture of them. And the birthday person might sit there and do nothing. They might say nothing. They might close their eyes. They might have their eyes open. They might um, share what they're thinking about. They might not. And I can talk more about the details of this process hopefully when we come to the end of this um, book. But that was my introduction to circling. And the experience that I had when I was the birthday person and everyone was focused on me, trying to really see me and really understand my experience without, it's not therapy, it's not counseling, it's not advice, it's not anything like that. It's just basically a meditative inquiry into um, what's your experience in this moment right now, Chris Adams. And with a genuine compassion and a genuine curiosity and a genuine interest. And just that started to unravel all kinds of inner tensions, all kinds of tensions. The relief at being seen is so profound And that experience was different for every person, but I I noticed every single person come to their own place of, wow, this is different than anything I've ever felt. I like this. So anyways, um, that's just a little bit about my introduction to circling. And now, without further ado, I'm going to jump into chapter three of Jason Diggs' book, Conflict Equals Energy, and here we go.
The five practices of authentic relating. Some people think they are in community, but they are only in proximity. True community requires commitment and openness. It is a willingness to extend yourself to encounter and know the other. And that's a quote from David Spangler. Within the five practices of authentic relating lies a comprehensive toolkit for an individual, community, or society to operate with a balance of love and truth, authenticity and compassion. These practices contain both a structure for how to direct our awareness and the tools to grapple with the complexity of all that it means to be human. With these tools, we can learn to live in the balance point between belonging and expression. This is a central polarity of authentic relating that acknowledges we need both to feel the safety and support of connection, as well as the freedom to express ourselves fully. In short, these practices unlock the capacities to sustain empowered, alive, nourishing connections and constitute a day-by-day and moment-by-moment map of how to build that capacity. They form the core of the authentic relating framework. They are welcome everything, assume nothing, reveal your experience, own your experience, honor self and other. Practice one, welcome everything. Tension, conflict, and dissatisfaction are part of life. Rather than try to avoid or resist these inevitabilities, the first practice invites us to welcome everything. We greet with gratitude or at least awareness both our positive and negative experiences and the full spectrum of emotions that comprise what it is to be human. Welcome everything is the gateway practice to all the others. If we begin by welcoming every experience as meaningful in its own way, we can then get curious instead of pushing our experiences away. The opposite of welcoming, of course, is rejection. The mind has many defense mechanisms it may engage to do this, but the two that we will discuss here are repression and suppression, because both are forms of inauthenticity. In the simplest of terms, to suppress an experience is to push down some natural expression or reaction to a person or an event because it doesn't fit with what we think others will accept. This is driven by our biological need for group approval and ultimately survival. Suppression is usually driven by a fear of social consequences and how we might be perceived. Another main form of inauthenticity shows up when we hide things from ourselves and pretend we aren't aware of them, primarily out of fear of the intensity of those emotions. This is repression. Repression usually leads us to numb out or avoid our emotions in some way. Both suppression and repression are forms of rejecting and resisting our experience. These two defense mechanisms are formed in childhood, are adaptive, and may even be healthy during those early years. In adults, however, they can keep us stuck in unhelpful patterns and prevent us from learning and growing. They also reduce our ability to be authentic. When we decide instead to welcome everything in our experience, we challenge these old habits. Welcoming often feels like we are widening and efforting to expand ourselves to include more. It takes a lot of energy to behave in opposition to old patterns, especially at first. Yet the more we practice welcoming, the easier we find it until it becomes a way of life. This brings us into harmony with life because we're no longer resisting what is. Though it may take effort to cultivate this habit, we will find that it actually saves us energy in the long run. 
In addition to our emotions and inner world, welcoming everything also includes the people and circumstances around us. Yet it must start from the inside, because this is the core of our sphere of influence. One of the great gifts of authentic relating is being able to receive others with acceptance for who and how they really are. It's not always easy, but the more we practice welcoming our own internal experience, the more we can bring this capacity into our relationships, and the easier we will find it to navigate life's challenges as a whole. If, on the other hand, we choose to avoid things by sweeping them under the rug, they don't actually disappear. This colloquialism illustrates that realities persist, hidden in plain sight, lumped under the proverbial rug. Over the course of our emotional lives, repressed or suppressed experiences build up until they cause numbness, depression, anxiety, or other ailments. A much healthier, more effective way of processing is to turn toward our experiences and deal with reality accordingly in the moment. Notice the phrase, deal with reality accordingly. The practice of welcoming everything does not mean tolerating everything or putting up with physical or emotional harm. There are certain situations that we must not tolerate for the sake of our integrity and ethics, and others that we must strive to change, improve, or influence simply because we care. Before we move into action, however, we must first allow ourselves to fully acknowledge those situations. In this practice, we allow our experience in, as if it were knocking at the door, even and especially those parts that are painful and hard to look at. Only when we face our internal experience in an honest way can we meet our external reality as it is. The moment we practice welcoming everything, we can actually feel a change in our bodies. Resistance and repression have a certain feeling tone in the body, as does the attitude of welcoming. Many people report a relaxing of tension in their neck and back, a decrease in the pressure in their face and hands, and feelings of peace, joy, or clarity. As our mindset changes, our physical responses shift as well. This feedback loop of positivity becomes possible whenever we stop expending energy trying to control others and instead allow it to flow back to us. While this is by no means easy, it can be remarkably powerful to embody. AR Power Tool Permission to Vent Anger, resentment, frustration, difficult feelings like this can be destructive if bottled, but also toxic if mindlessly dumped on others. So how the heck do we welcome all the stormy emotions of life? The key is in our awareness and intent. If we are willing to take responsibility for our emotions, we can actually enroll others to help metabolize our experiences. In this tool, we can give ourselves permission to vent through the practice of welcoming everything, as well as context setting and consent, which we'll discuss in more depth later. Far from irresponsible, conscious venting can be a radically mature and respectful act. We first find someone we trust, get their buy-in to receive our energy, e.g., I need to vent, would you be willing to listen? This is a markedly different experience from gossip or complaining. We do not vent to put others down or to raise ourselves up. In conscious venting, we're choosing to welcome the energy of our emotions so that we can ultimately come to a place of more dignity and more humility. When we express our emotions with conscious intent rather than suppress or repress them, we become their director rather than their puppet. 
And when we purposely bring others into the process with consent, we allow them into our vulnerability instead of sucking them into our stories or dramas. Practice two, assume nothing. Tens of thousands of years ago, human nervous systems developed the capacity to catalog, store, and communicate information about the world. This was an essential evolutionary upgrade, allowing us to apply past learning to current situations and to visualize and predict possible outcomes in the future. We use this capacity to create safety and structure in our surroundings. After all, these things are essential for our survival. Imagine the pressures our ancestors faced, constantly needing to ask themselves, will I die if I eat this? Will this person or animal hurt me? Will this action help me secure more resources? Ultimately, these are all variations of the question, will I be safe? We have evolved with this primary focus on survival, and as such, we tend to want to make our world predictable, especially when it comes to our most essential needs. These imperatives in our nervous system also process social tension as a kind of survival threat. In fact, current neuroscience research shows that our brains give us emotional pain signals when we deviate from group norms or detect disapproval from others. Our brains are constantly creating expectations and assumptions about our environment and the people around us so that we might successfully anticipate and solve problems. This includes how to fit in socially. The human nervous system is simply designed this way. There's no getting around it. And while it has been essential for our survival as a species, it can also wreak havoc in our relationships. We have all kinds of past experiences stored in our brains and bodies at the subconscious level. Our subconscious mind is continuously and rapidly pattern matching what is happening in the present moment with what has happened in the past. It does its best to predict what might happen in our future, and it does this for our own good. After all, responding to danger is easier when one is prepared for it. The process is complex. Imagine that your subconscious mind is like a supercomputer. Right now, it is tracking an incomprehensible array of variables beyond your awareness of the screen in front of you. If something in the present moment seems similar to something that was perceived as dangerous in the past, our inner defenses will become activated. We may feel a little tense or lose patience with others more quickly all before we have any conscious awareness that something is happening for us emotionally. At the outset of this emotionally triggered response, we have an opportunity. With some training, we can extend the amount of time during an activation that we are able to keep our higher brain functions within our conscious control. However, if we enter a fully triggering experience, all bets are off, and we can find ourselves acting in ways that sabotage or damage relationships. This opportunity between stimulus and response is where we employ the practice of assume nothing to extend that time. This is a teaching beautifully illustrated in the anonymous quote, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. When we assume we know what's about to happen, based on our past traumas and our experiences, We rob the present moment of its mystery and unique expression. Often our assumptions are incorrect, and therefore our actions, attitudes, or communication is misattuned to the actual situation. Assume nothing is a practice that births us into a place of curiosity and learning. Of course, the practice is not as simple as learning to cease assumptions. As we've seen, our evolutionary impulse for safety has been with us for millions of years. 
So while we can't expect ourselves to simply stop having assumptions or expectations, we can mitigate the harm they cause. Here's how. Step one, notice. This is often the hardest part. Asking ourselves to notice our assumptions or expectations is a bit like asking a fish to notice the water it's swimming in. Part of the reason it is so hard to change habitual responses is that they feel so natural to us. So the invitation is first to notice. Do you feel, for example, anger when holding on to certain thoughts or constriction around that big talk with your boss? What's the story you're telling yourself about what happened or might happen? Simply notice these things and then notice what it feels like in your body to drop your assumptions and expectations. As you do so, does something anything else release? Do you feel more open, excited, sleepy? No matter the feelings, just continue to notice them. Over time, the simple act of noticing allows us more space before reacting. Step two, get curious. As we notice the feelings that come with our assumptions, we can begin to bring genuine curiosity to our experience with another. Try asking yourself questions like, what am I assuming in this situation? What is served by my holding onto this assumption? How might this assumption be holding us back from openness and connection? Step three, check your assumptions. Finally, check your assumptions about people by vocalizing them to others. Be open enough to state what you perceive and what you're responding to. Then be open to feedback. Ask, for example, I'm imagining that you want me to be blank. Can you let me know if that's right? It seems like you feel blank. Does that fit for you? Or can I check my assumption about something here? When we practice three steps, we move toward a life with fewer unchecked assumptions and therefore fewer relationship roadblocks. Remember, we will never be able to definitively rid ourselves of assumptions. We can, however, strive toward something better by consciously engaging our curiosity. AR power tool, is that true for you? Since there's no getting around our assumption-making habit, playfully reframing our assumptions as guesses can be helpful. Sometimes we're right. Sometimes we're wrong. And most times we're actually somewhere in between. That is, our intuition may be picking up on something accurate while we color in the rest of the picture with our biases and projections. As we will explore in more depth in Chapter 7, adding a flavor of curiosity to our biases is a profoundly compassionate act. Curiosity simply desires to know the truth. And being wrong about our guesses is just as welcome as being right. From the perspective of authentic relating, we should consider being wrong a success. Asking others to confirm our assumptions can be a massive source of information. Try stating your guess in simple language and then follow it up with, is that true for you? This short phrase offers the other person the space to articulate their reality, and we learn both more about who they are and about our own patterns of assumption. These questions can also be a way of showing our respect, letting others know we care about them enough to endeavor to truly understand their perspectives. So that is practice one and practice two. We will do practice three and four next time. I hope you all have a, a wonderful week. If you want to uh, check out the other podcasts that I make, please go to podjectivity.com 
P-O-D-J-E-C-T-I-V-I-T-Y.com. Hope you like to spell. To uh, check out Solving Everything, which is both um, co-hosted by two male friends of mine and very, very different than what I do on this podcast. So you'll have to go check it out and see for yourself. We have really in-depth conversations that are both hilarious and sometimes raise more questions than they answer. Have a great week.